Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, securing the computers of tomorrow against the adversary. A key pillar of the president's management agenda comes to acquisition, and the solution to your disappearing security perimeter is get over it. It's Monday, July 11th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Aerojet Rocketdyne will pay the government $9 million to settle False Claims Act allegations about cybersecurity. A whistleblower that used to work for the company alerted the Justice Department's Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative. The whistleblower will get $2.61 million of the settlement. The Federal Communications Commission has a new chief information officer. Alan Hill will take the job starting August 1st. He joins the FCC from the General Services Administration. He's the Deputy Assistant Commissioner for Category Management at the Federal Acquisition Service now. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Nominations are open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. We want you to nominate leaders in the federal IT community for their achievements and contributions to the community. You can read more about how to nominate somebody through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The selections of the first four encryption tools to guard against a cyber attack from a quantum computer are out from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Jim Richberg is Public Sector Field Chief Information Security Officer and Vice President of Information Security at Fortinet. He's former National Intelligence Manager for Cyber at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Jim, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming on the program. I mentioned before we went on the air, I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of the court. Why is this important? It looks really important to me, but it's a little bit over my head. Why is this a big deal? Welcome. Well, Francis, it's always great to talk to you. And and let me admit, um, I'm not a pocket protector wearing geek on this one either. I know just enough about math to balance my checkbook and, and, and that's dangerous. But, you know, when I look at the things that happened last week that affected the federal government and cybersecurity, this was arguably the biggest story that I saw. Here, NIST has announced the first winners from this cryptographic algorithm competition to design these encryption tools that can withstand assault from future quantum computers. Now, these are going to become the some of the tools that will be in the cryptographic standard NIST is going to deploy in the next couple of years. Now, why does this matter? Well, because a sufficiently large quantum computer, we already have quantum computers, you can run time on them, but they're tiny. But when they get big enough, and it's not just a matter of, you know, throwing processors together like we do with conventional computers, there's quantum physics involved. So we're not there yet, but when they get big enough, they're going to render all current public key encryption algorithms insecure. And while, at least if you look at the open literature, we're years to a decade plus away from doing that, who knows, A, what government is doing, governments are doing behind closed doors, and B, it has taken us 20 years to deploy modern public key cryptography infrastructure. I mean, you and I are both old enough to remember back when email was not encrypted by default. You had to manually encrypt it. Now e-commerce, you universally look for that padlock. So it has taken us 20 years to get here. So when we come up with a new standard for quantum resistant cryptography, it's likely to take the same amount of time. And also bear in mind that adversaries, especially nation state adversaries, can collect data now and hold on to it 
to decrypt it after the quantum computers get powerful enough for them to be able to break everything. Do I care about somebody reading my email 10 years from now? No. Do I care about somebody reading my tax records and getting my social security number from it? Yes. So government has a a real issue that it has to think about in this space. All right. You talk about 20 years to deploy. This effort in and of itself has taken NIST six years to deploy. Um, The NIST information about this says in 2016, NIST called upon the world's cryptographers to devise and then vet encryption methods that could resist an attack from a future quantum computer. So this is, this is, anticipatory. This is not just defending against what we may be dealing with today from an adversary, but what we may be dealing with from an adversary in that 20-year period that you just described, right? Yes, yes. Uh, You know, Francis, standards are wonderful things, but standards are not free. Um, As you point out, there's a long lead time, six years from when NIST announced this competition to when we got to the point of actually having viable solutions that they could evaluate and select from. I think this is important because this demonstrates the value of partnership. In my federal career, I had an immense amount of respect for my colleagues from NIST. They're some of the smartest people I know, but they would be the first to admit they don't know everything. Everything. What they can do, one of the things that is a, an institutional center of expertise in NIST is their convening authority. The odds are really good that there's somebody in the federal government who knows something that is cutting edge about anything from cryptography to climate change to currency fluctuation. And NIST is good at pulling those people together to come to a consensus of what the government knows. They then use their convening authority to reach out to the private sector. And in this case, to academia too, because something like cryptography, a lot of math professors, I mean, the original public key Uh, approach came from three math professors. So this is partnership. This is long lead time. And when we talk about standards, Francis, the three things you got to keep in mind are time, cost, and and expertise. Uh, Look at the current NIST encryption standard, FIPS. It typically takes a year to get something certified. So, yeah, this is not something where you say, oh, good, we've got the standard now, everything's compliant. It costs money. If you look at a lot of certifications start at $250,000 and up to go through the testing cycle, and somebody has to do it. This is not a self-certification thing. Um, You may have heard the acronym 3PAO, which is not the Star Wars droids from the (laughs) next movie to be announced. It's the acronym for third-party assessment organization. It's like an underwriter's laboratory. So these things are all limited. So standards are good, but simply having standards doesn't necessarily mean you're using them. All right. The word that jumped out at me in the first paragraph of this press release that you pointed me to, uh, Department of Commerce's National Institute of Standards and Technology has chosen the first group of encryption tools. This is just the beginning of the journey, it sounds like. That is that is correct. And that's the same thing we've seen, uh, the, the role that NIST has taken on encryption from the very beginning. They look to solutions the U.S. government has. And then they don't tell you you have to do this. What they do is they set performance standards for this. And you know, I've talked about why standards are important and why they're not free goods. One of the things government has to keep in mind is the role of, of reciprocity, that what you really want is to be able to say a part of government like NIST spends a lot of time, convenes a lot of smart people to come up with a set of standards. Ideally, that should become the standard for something like 
quantum-resistant computing that would prevail across the board for the federal government. Uh, you know, and I talked about having this discussion be about something like the cybersecurity maturity model certification, which arguably I think this is a bigger story, but if we stick with that for a moment, CMMC, the first version of CMMC actually used both NIST standards and 30 of its own unique ones. One of the many changes to the new version is they've now gone to NIST standard controls solely. They dropped having something new. Unless there's a really compelling case, I think government needs to resist that itch to say, I have something that at the second decimal place is a little different than the standard. I'm going to put it out and tell industry to comply to that. All you do is, is create these extra hurdles that I think slow down innovation. I remember, geez, it's probably been 12 years ago now. Dave McClure was a GSA and they were standing up FedRAMP and he, I, I can't remember the quote, obviously, but that was exactly the original point of FedRAMP, Jim, is we're going to establish these standards and unless you have some compelling reason to need something else, you can institute this at your agency and be confident that it's going to be uh, something that will meet standards that, that will secure your data. Yeah, and FedRAMP is a great example, Francis, where it's not to say that my old national security intelligence community alma mater might not have something unique that requires an extra step, but this is something that should be the solution that would prevail for most organizations. And FedRAMP is a good example because the federal government has set that up as the way of talking about cloud security. And if vendors and managed security providers meet that, their state government, state and local government also are using an increasing number of cloud services and they've created an analog, state ramp. There's not perfect reciprocity between them, but if you have something that you've gone through that laborious process and spent the quarter million dollars to get something fed ramp certified, you fast track it for state ramp. Something that would take months, takes weeks, and instead of a quarter million dollars, it costs you a few thousand dollars for paperwork. So we're trying to really build this reciprocity of controls in there. And even if you look at you know, the executive order last year on cybersecurity, 14028, and that focus on software supply chain integrity, I think where that has gone, which again was government and private sector collaboration, means that a vendor that demonstrates compliance with a centralized set of US government guidelines, and NIST has put those out, means that they should have assurance that if they're following those best practices, they're doing what's required to support agencies across the government. Um, back to these four quantum-resistant algorithms that you pointed me to, Jim. I think absolutely no one will be surprised to know that one of them is named after a Star Trek gig. Uh, <laughs> Crystal's Dilithium is the name of one of these. Falcon, Sphinx Plus, and Crystal's Kyber. Uh, what would you watch in this effort moving forward something about these four in particular, something about the next four that NIST says it will introduce at some point in the future, it doesn't have a date certain on that, uh, or, or something else? Um, I actually am not as concerned with the, the eaches of, you know, the performance of each one. I'm going to, NIST did its job, it set the standards, those will work. What I would look for, Francis, is to see these go more broadly, uh, because there are other standards that the U.S. influences, such as the International Organization for Standardization, ISO. Look at how many ISO standards are in fact based on the hard work that NIST does. So what I would look for is not necessarily what the next round of these is, but that this potentially becomes the backbone of an ISO standard 
on quantum resistant crypto, because let's face it, this is a globalized world out there and the rising tide will lift all boats because U.S. government data, U.S. government networks going over backbones that it doesn't matter if we've got things that are quantum resistant, if they're going over things that are not, we share the vulnerability. Jim Richberg, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on, my friend. I always enjoy chatting with you, Francis. You can read more about the quantum security tools Jim talked about in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Tuesday's show, next steps for artificial intelligence in the Pentagon. Former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work is on tomorrow's show. That episode debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The White House's next theater of operations for its diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility work is acquisition. That work will impact the way agencies look for and buy from small businesses. Angela Stiles is a partner at Aiken Gump. She's former administrator of federal procurement policy. Angela, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. Your former colleague, Matthew Blum, talking about this at the Professional Services Council annual meeting. What's your takeaway from where the White House is going and where the administration is going on small business contracting, especially regarding DEIA? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. It's always good to be on your show. I um, I think a lot of progress is being made, actually. I do see an increased focus at the agencies on small businesses in general. I'm seeing an increased focus in contract money as well as grant money, and that's good. Now, how the diversity, equity, and inclusion plays into that is a little bit harder to determine. And so the equity initiative is focused on small businesses, but is it focused on particular small businesses? And I think a lot of that will come out uh, in the plans. You know, what do the equity plans look like from the different agencies? Um, what types of small businesses are they focusing on? Are they focusing on 8A? Are they focusing on minority businesses? Are they focusing on women, hub zone, veterans? There's a lot of different categories. And so um, there's always a lot of, I think, infighting among the different types of small businesses, if you will. Has someone... OFPP, GSA, somebody else been collecting the data all along that the administration will need to be able to see whether it's hitting the goals that it's setting for itself and for the agencies? Or is that also part of standing up this effort to collect the data to know where you stand, to know where you start, and then know where you get to? The data has been collected for several decades. Um, and it's been, you know, fairly consistently collected over the decades, although there's a numerator and there's a denominator. And so is the denominator really all federal dollars, but it's not, it's a portion of federal dollars. And so um, it does take a hard look at the numbers and how those are divided up. You know, you can have a 23%, 30% goal for small businesses overall, but how is that divided up? How do agencies get there? And not just by awarding contracts to particular types of small businesses, but also making sure they're fulfilling their mission. And so, you know, the first thing that they're going to always have to think of is what's the best company to help us fulfill our mission. What is the responsibility, obligation, expectation for large businesses to prime for small business subs? And what, how does that help an agency get to the number, the goal that it wants to get to? You know, there are two different things that happen. One is that um, a large business can be evaluated. So when an RFP comes out, there can be an evaluation criteria for 
um, awards to small businesses? Like what are your small businesses? Which ones have you already partnered with? Which ones are part of your proposal? That's really, frankly, the most effective way to make sure that the large businesses um, have included small businesses as part of their proposal. Now, the other one is just the overall plan. So there's a small business subcontracting plan that every large business has to submit. There really hasn't been a lot of enforcement of these over time. Um, you know, it doesn't go into the evaluation criteria. Usually when um, the government's looking at an RFP and deciding to who to award to, there can be ramifications and there can be penalties, but it just, it isn't enforced. And so, you know, it's a hammer or it's, you know, it's uh, it's honey. It's hard. It's it's a hard balancing act to make sure that large businesses are effectively utilizing small businesses. I teased my colleagues, James and Carl, at uh, the end of last week that if we had some kind of cash payment for every time we talked about zero trust in this program, we'd retire pretty soon. You this uh, at the PSC conference, they looked at this, the concept of zero trust from the acquisition perspective. And I don't think that's an area that a lot of people have talked about, what the expectations are going to be and and how exactly that's going to work. You pointed me to a couple of uh, cases that uh, have been discussed about zero trust regarding federal acquisition regulation. What What's the intersection between what agencies need to fulfill the administration's uh, executive order on zero trust and the way they go about buying those things through the FAR? Well, I think it's a very difficult balancing act, and you're really seeing it play out at DOD more than you are any other federal agency right now. And so it's a core cybersecurity issue. We obviously have all kinds of issues with, with hacking, national security, theft of trade secrets, and the federal government executive order is essentially telling the federal agencies that, you know, this is serious, these cybersecurity issues are serious, and this is a world of zero trust. Well, that's fine. The federal government's not there. It's heading in that direction. For contractors, you know, the Department of Defense has made a lot of movement in terms of saying, since 2017, we've had this uh, clause in the DFARS that requires you to go through all these NIST requirements, 110 NIST requirements, and come up with, you know, ways to make sure that you're complying with them. There was a very, you know, recent um, Aerojet Rocketdyne settlement, which was just in the last week or so, um, relating to their failure to uh, follow. I mean, they said they were following all the requirements, and it appears that maybe they had not been following the requirements, but that's, you know, they settled that case out. It's a really unique case, though, because, um most companies that are complying with the NIST requirements have some flexibility over time to put together their cyber plans. They only have to enter a score into the DOD database. So the Department of Defense recognizes that you can't just one day say zero trust mm. because you won't have any contractors. And so um, without too heavy a hammer, they're slowly moving defense contractors and subcontractors in the right direction of more protection from a cyber perspective. I wonder if that's not discouraging, though, for smaller companies to see a headline like that. And I understand the details of the case may be peculiar, but if I'm a little 30-person company in the heartland somewhere and I'm not really plugged in and connected in Washington, D.C., and I see a headline that a company the size of Aerojet Rocketdyne is struggling to comply with the department's cybersecurity regulations or or just has not done so, whatever the internal reasons may be. That may seem really, really daunting to me out there in Heartland USA, Angela. 
I think all of the cybersecurity requirements are daunting for small businesses because they're expensive, they're hard to put in place, it makes it a little bit less efficient to work as well. But I also think it's a headline and a little bit of a scare tactic because if you're honest with the government, this is where we are and with our cybersecurity measures and this is where we're going, you're gonna be fine. You're, you're gonna be able to get there and, and small businesses can do it, but you have to recognize it's a cost of doing business with the federal government and the requirements are gonna be increasing over time. What else is on the landscape as you're working with companies and navigating what they're trying to understand and do in business with the government right now, Angela? I think there's a lot still in infrastructure. Obviously, there's a lot of money coming out of infrastructure. There are many, many unanswered questions about the Buy American requirements for infrastructure funding that's going out to the states, as well as, you know, continuing changes to Buy American for federal procurement as well. Um, there are a lot of companies that are trying to decide how much do I actually and what do I have to actually manufacture here in the United States? And I'll say administrations being a little cagey because they want people to, you know, err on the side of more in the U.S. So they're not going to give you a rule until they have to. Angela Stiles, great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much. Thank you. Take care. You can read more about the contracting rules Angela talked about in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. And there's more there, too about the Aerojet Rocketdyne settlement. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Security leaders across government say identity management is one of the most important components of zero trust. Shane Barney's the chief information security officer at Citizenship and Immigration Services. He tells FedScoop's Billy Mitchell a number of issues are at play in his agency's identity management journey. The first and foremost I've seen, and it, it, it was the same for us in our journey and the same for a lot of agencies, is sort of outdated technologies and also you know, current technologies that are sort of running around in your enterprise. And you, you've heard us all joke about having mainframes. Well, they really do have mainframes. And, you know, we really still are trying to still find COBOL, you know, programmers, um, which are really, really hard to find. Uh, you know, so we really have these, these really old technology, and then we have these very modern cloud-based systems where obviously they, they you know, really easy to do really modern identity security and role-based access controls and all these great, wonderful things. But then, of course, you have these laggers, and some of these laggers are significant aspects of your mission overall. So pulling those older technologies forward into the modern age is, is a big challenge. So, you know, this is not just about the identity journey. It's really about a modernization journey. Um, and, and it's a forced modernization march uh, because if you know you're really trying to do the zero trust, you're really trying to get there. Um, you know you're going to have to pull all of your stuff with you at the same time. So you're you're in the process of trying to modernize your identity solutions. At the same time, you're trying to modernize these very old, uh, you know, a mainframe or just some old, very old technology that you have laying around that you're still leveraging for your mission. And, and you got to do that without losing sight of the mission. You know, so that's that's the big first challenge for a lot of organizations. Uh, you know, obviously, this isn't cheap. Uh, funding is, is a significant challenge for a lot of organizations. Um, I've seen a number of different polls asking organizations about what that what that looks like for them. You know, how what the percentage of your overall IT budget that have to be dedicated to that. You know, the range it ranges anywhere from a low of like eight or nine percent to as high as twelve percent of their overall IT budget. It's probably not too far off. Um, and and for for an organization, even USCIS, which spends a lot of money on IT. 
for us to take 10% of our overall budget or even 8% of our overall budget and then just do identity for it, you know, that's, that, that means that something on the mission side has to give to do that. So balancing the priorities of mission and, and the needs of doing a more modern approach to identity are also really challenging. And I think the, the final piece is a lot of organizations that I've spoken to, and I've spent a lot of time talking to organizations about this, is it's just not quite, quite sure where to start. A lot of the, the guidance that we see out there right now kind of, you know, they give you the pillars, they tell you all this really cool high level stuff, and they talk about it at a very high level, but what they don't really tell you is the very tactical level. Like, where do I start with this whole thing? This is, this is a huge, huge effort to undertake. Uh, it's a fundamental mind shift in how you do, how you do things. Where do I start? So it, it's those three big ones that I see across the agencies, and, and there are always varying levels of that no matter where you go. Shane, you mentioned modernizing identity. Where has your agency made the biggest gains over the past year in modernizing your identity management capabilities? So USCIS is a little bit of a, we're sort of an outlier. Uh, we started in cloud a long time ago, 10 year, 10 plus years ago now, I think. Um, and at this point, my agency's probably 80, 90% cloud-based. Um, about you know, halfway through that, that, that journey to the cloud, we, we in the security shop recognized that there was, that fundamentally we had to change the way we did identity. So about five years ago, we started changing it. We started altering the way we did it. We started impl implementing a lot of these things that would later become known as zero trust. Um, and, and only because we recognized that cloud is fundamentally different from prem. And in, because of that differences, we had to approach it differently. Um, it's not bad different or good different, it's just different. And understanding those differences and leveraging those differences to your advantage, I think, was critical. So, so we started putting in place a lot of these what would become very foundational pieces for zero trust. So over the last year, you know, what we've really been pushing hard into is, is really f getting, getting control in, of all the workflows for role-based access and how we manage our users in and out. Um, because having that 100% lock on your identity um, is the most critical thing you can do as an agency and organization because you've, you've got to have that. Um, and, and then for really the next big focus for us is moving that identity out beyond users. I mean, there was a heavy focus on users. There tends to be um, some of the models sort of emphasize the user over everything else. But the reality is, is you're applying identity at that level to everything in your enterprise, be it an asset, be it a server, a firewall, a cloud asset, a VDI, it's not gonna matter. You're still going to apply that same level of scrutiny, that same level, there's gonna to have to be roles associated, there's attributes associated with it, and then you're gonna monitor all that at a very low transactional level. Um, that's, that's a lot of fun, a lot of challenge. So as we close out, how are modern cloud-based identity platforms helping to accelerate your agency's efforts to meet the administration's zero trust security mandates? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, I am the biggest advocate for cloud. Uh, I can't say that I always was. There was a while there, because um, I was there through the transition for CIS from we were primarily a prime organization to our cloud where we are today. And, and I understood, and I watched all the pain. I was part of the driving force behind moving into the cloud from a security perspective. But it, it took me a while to wrap my head around why that was so critical. Um, honestly, zero trust on-prem, I, I know they say it's possible, it's really not. Not, not in the holistic sense and not in the way that it should and can be done and has to be done. Um, and, and worse, if you're a hybrid organization, you're really, you're really stretched thin trying to balance the two aspects of your enterprise because they're gonna fundamentally operate differently. Um, and your security models are gonna have to be different. The way you approach them is different. You know, cloud with its API infrastructure, um, the ability to scale it the way it does, 
Um, all that lends itself to, to zero trust. Um, and in fact, without it, you, you really just can't do it, not, not, in, the, not in the way it's been architected. Um, and so really, you know, for a lot of agencies, getting to cloud is going to be you know, hurdle one. Um, you know, USS is very, very unique in the level of cloud that we operate in. Um, we technically operate in three clouds. Um, not a fan of multi-cloud, but we do. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're pretty far down now and we're very, we're very comfortable where we're at. Not everybody's there yet. And, and I think that step one, they get to the cloud um, and, and really begin to understand how you apply your security architecture to that cloud, or your security stack to, the, to your new cloud enterprise. And recognize that in cloud, there is no such thing as perimeter and just get over it. Shane Barney of USCIS with FedScoop's Billy Mitchell. You can find a link to watch the video of that entire conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast is back tomorrow with Bob Work. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.